So there was a brother, Day, and he's the one who pulled me aside one day at her house. I've told most of you this. Um, he pulled me in the living room to, to tell me, he said, this is the most important thing I could ever tell you in terms of ministry. And though I knew we were pretty far apart theologically in some ways, I thought, this has to be good. You know, like his whole ministry, this is the most important thing he could tell me. And so he said, and Kay later told me that he had had a ministry in where, where not many people had, you know, come down front, so to speak, you know, revival style. So his advice was, when you have a, when you get a church, he was so serious, he said, you make sure that the steps are right by the pulpit. Because if they're way over here to the side, after you finish your sermon and before uh, the altar call, you lose eye contact, you lose them every time. <laughs> Whole ministry. Steps. Whole ministry. Gosh, that was just... I, I was just utterly dumbfounded. I had no... Well, the other thing that was really interesting is that was Mr. May, Dr. May, and Dr. That Dr. Day, then Dr. May, uh, Kay and I kidded about this a lot, <clears throat> he was convinced because Spurgeon was so dedicated to evangelism and so dedicated to the free offer of the gospel that hey, there's no way he was a Calvinist. No way he could be a Calvinist. Um, and I didn't argue with him because uh, I knew he would find out, you know, sooner or later <laughs> when he died. But anyway, uh, but um, <clears throat> and he was a dear, precious, precious man. Gosh, he's one of the I, I have the deepest respect for him. But here is uh, this is on the last page of the paper for uh, that I handed out, page eight. I'm persuaded that the doctrine of predestination. The blessed truth of providence is one of the softest pillows upon which the Christian can lay his head. And I would really, I'd submit that to you. As you think of election, it seems daunting, it seems severe, it seems harsh. But I love that phrase, softest pillows upon which the Christian can lay his head. And one of the strongest staffs upon which he may lean in his pilgrimage along the, this rough road. Cheer up, Christian. Things are not left to change. No blind fate rules the world. God hath purposes, and those purposes are fulfilled. God hath plans, and those plans are wise, and never can be dislocated. O oh, trust in Him, and thou shalt have each fruit in its season, the mercy in its time, the trial in its period, and the deliverance in its needed moment. Um, so that's that's the spirit with which, uh, hopefully, I wrote this paper, uh, exploring election. Uh, it's about the love of God, right? Um, and we don't associate those enough uh, in, in our thinking. So, as I said, if those of you just came in, there's a, a eight-page paper just uh, floating around. If uh, you'd like to take that home, you, you may. Uh, but we're going to talk about inability, sovereignty, and responsibility in coming to Christ. Next week, we're going to talk about sovereignty and responsibility in the Christian life. Like the idea... Uh, what I, I grew up with, you let go and let God. You let go and let God live His life, let Christ live His life through you. You don't do anything, you just trust. And I've, 
associated with other people who came out of a, a disciplined uh, a, a, a disciplined but sense of being alienated and out of the favor of God, but trying with all their effort, and they swing way over here and think, you can't really be disciplined, you can't really try, you can't produce effort, because when you do, you're going to get under the grind, it's legalistic, uh, you can't do that. And then, of course, you've got this other side. And my, um, my thesis next week, which I, hopefully is a biblical thesis, is that you are liberated in the favor you have with God and the empowerment with God's Spirit to hurl yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good illustration. I just do it naturally. Yeah, that's just um, to hurl yourself into the Christian life uh, with with no holes barred. Uh, the, the Reformed believers should be the most disciplined people in the world and the most joyous. Right, same time, the joy and the discipline and the effort and the obedience are all one glorious package. Liberty, not liberty not to obey, liberty to obey, right? Liberty to throw yourself into it, unabashed with with no fear. So we'll talk about that. And that's in the context of we have in ourselves no ability to do anything to obey God. Uh, But what does God do in our lives? But this this morning we're going to look at... um, the idea of coming to Christ. And I've taken three passages that are rather startling in the juxtaposition of the statements of God's sovereignty and salvation and yet the free offer of the gospel and salvation. So first is John chapter 6. If you turn to, we'll start with verse 35. We won't read all those verses, but this is the section from which we'll draw. That's on page 892 in your pew Bible. Let's pray as we get started. Gracious Lord, enable us uh, to glorify your name as we see your greatness, your strength, your, your love. And Lord, as we see also our responsibility uh, that while we have no ability and we are lost and in darkness, you still call us. You call us to trust you. You call us to follow you. And you enable us to do what you call us to do. Lord, we pray that you would help us in what is a a difficult area for us to think about, uh, that we may honor you, but especially, Lord, that we may walk all the more uh, to uh, obey you and live out the gracious life you have given us in Christ. Amen. So you have this first statement in verse 35, which uh, is wide open to any person listening, right? Any person that would hear this. And very famous statement, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not uh, hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Um, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe and you'll, you'll see in several of these passages that God guards his sovereignty. Like when people challenge and say, well, look, you're calling people out to believe in you, and a lot of people don't believe in you. And he'll guard his sovereignty and say, that's because they're not mine, and I didn't call them. You know, he, he, he guards his privileges, his rights, that 
all that he wants to accomplish will be accomplished. <clears throat> so then he noticed, he, he follows from that statement. Uh, I said, you, you've seen me and yet do not believe. But all that the, almost as though he says, but, oh, but all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So uh, this has uh, three three stages. Um, I, I like to to draw it out like this, and we'll see this in each of these passages. So, before time, okay, what part of that John 6, uh, 37 through 39 would be before time? What phrase? The Father. Hi, sorry? The Father gave me. Yes, yes. All that the Father has given me. All right. Now, in time, what, what happens? In time, will come to be. Yeah, will and <laughs> come to me. Who will come to me? Let's say it. All <laughs> the Father gives me. All right. So there's not one single person the Father gives me. That will not come to me. Is that how you read it? Anybody read it any differently? You're wrong if you didn't. No, I'm just kidding. But just looking at the passage, right? And then, um, let's say eternity or new, let's say new creation, which I like to think about. But what what will this? What part is this? Yeah, raise him up on the last day. Of course, here's the last day, and it you know just goes from there. But <clears throat> the point is, although all these people that are raised up still are the all. So you realize that he gave these people to me, and I came to do his will, and it's to make sure that all of those people come to me, and I raise them up on the last day. So very much like, as we will see, Romans uh, 8, where it says... He knew us beforehand, predestined us, then He called us and justified us, and then He glorified us. But you'll, you'll see this overarching work again and again in just one sentence. Like 2 Timothy 2.10, uh, Paul says, I labor so that uh, all those, uh, all the chosen, all the elect uh, will obtain salvation and the eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's just a structure that, that the apostles carried with them of God's overarching purpose. The whole point of Romans 8 is he loved us beforehand and predestined us so nothing will separate us from the love of God and we will be glorified and be conformed to Christ in the last day. It's, it's just this overarching plan. <clears throat> but how do you... How do you fit 
635 in this. See? Anyone who comes to me. So he addresses people uh, whoever believes in me, even as he says the ones that the Father gives me. Then notice what he says a little later in verse 44. He, he tightens down, battens down the hatches a little bit on the sovereignty of God. Um, <clears throat> verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you're talking about the same thing, raise him up on the last day, that little phrase, raise him up on the last day. Um, and so in time, uh, he talks about the Father must draw him or her. <clears throat> and no one can come. They all will come. But no one will come unless my father draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So, you know, he's talking about the same kind of category of people uh, that he will raise up on the last day. They'll all come to him because now we learn the father will draw them. Otherwise, they wouldn't come to him. So all that the father gives me will come to me because outside of the father drawing them, they couldn't come to me, but he will draw them. And that word draw uh, it's it's uh, dr- drawing a net out of the water, or uh, in uh, Samuel uh, twenty two seventeen, uh, David says, "You drew me out of many waters," which I think is a great picture of drawing us out of sin and and uh, ba- being bound by Satan. One of the most beautiful uses of it, though, is in uh, Song of Solomon where she says, draw me after you and let us run together. You know, I love that. You know, kind of the picture of God drawing us to have him and run after him and, and be his uh, lovers forever, you know. Um, but it's a powerful word uh, of the need to be drawn and uh, pulled. And sometimes it's even violent, like they... they uh, took him uh, to prison or, you know, words, uh, phrases like that. <clears throat> but you'll notice uh, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves, doubting his power, doubting his authority. Um, and even there, when there are these doubts, he resorts again to the sovereignty of God. And notice the sovereignty of God as well in the following verses. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So this again is a uh, an act of God's sovereignty. If you've heard and learned of the Father, I, I would... Um, another way to say Paul put that is... Like in Second Corinthians four six, where it says God shown the glory of Christ into their hearts. See, that's an idea of being uh, hearing and learning from the Father. The Father opening up your eyes to understand uh, the things of Christ. But again, it's the same thing. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And perhaps this is uh, an enlargement on that meaning of drawing him. Uh, that is everyone who's heard and learned from the Father. So it's not a drawing him is not just this 
you know, physical, mindless thing that you're drawn, but you're drawn because you hear and learn from the Father. As the gospel comes to you, the Father through the Spirit, uh, the Lord through the Spirit opens up your heart to understand these things. And you can, it can be said of you, wow, you heard and learned from the Father. Remember how Jesus would say, uh, who do they say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not shown this to you, but my Father in heaven. He's the one that revealed this to you. Peter heard and learned from the Father. See, that's the, that's the meaning there. That the Father revealed this to you, Peter, or you wouldn't understand it otherwise. <clears throat> but then, right after he says that, um, truly I say to you, verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And so the, the free invitation goes out. Anyone can have this. Everyone is invited. Right alongside of those the Father gives me will come to me. Only those who are drawn only those who hear and learn of the Father. And then you throw in, um, let's see, this is uh, verse 44, verse 45, and 46. And then uh, verse 66. Notice how he puts it here. And, and again, he's talking about the same thing. Uh, I mean, 65, not 66. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. <clears throat> And you can see how granted relates to this. See that? It was granted to me, to you, to come to me because you were given to me in eternity. And, and it was granted to you. That's why you can come to me. It was granted to you. And if it's granted to you and you're given to me, then the Father will draw you and the, you will hear and learn from the Father. And you'll be raised up on the last day. Is that clear? Any questions about that or how that works? So, granted, given to him, in time then, you're drawn to him, you hear and learn from the Father, and repeatedly he says, I'll raise it up on the last day. Yes? Yeah, 65. No, 35. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm just addressing the fact that in the midst of talking about the exclusive nature of salvation, that it comes to some and only these that are given him, he still addresses everybody. And I'm just trying to put the two side by side because there are people who we would call hyper-Calvinists um, and uh, primitive Baptists historically were like this. Um, I had a whole set of commentaries and I still have his... Uh, uh, systematic theology of a, uh, a Reformed Baptist, Primitive Baptist. And they would say, because of this, you can't offer the gospel to everybody. There's a form of uh, Reformed church, too. I don't know if it's RCA or R, which, which one it is, but Hukima uh, uh, was, uh, uh, I've got his stuff, too. But they would say, <clears throat> it, it's not proper you, to you to offer this 
because they're, you may offer it to non-elect. It's not for them. See, So they're being consistent as the way this looks. Like, how can you offer this to people to whom it hasn't been given? You just preach about Jesus and then the Father will draw them. But don't say to somebody, this is yours if you'll have it. You can't say that to them because you don't know if they're elect. And logically, that really is true. It's unbiblical, (laughs) but it's logical. (laughs) Then on the other side, the Arminian would say, because this offer is there, this can't be true. Because he offers it to everybody. He wants everybody to come to Jesus. He hasn't said beforehand, some have it and some don't, because he offers it to everybody. So this can't be true. So then they decide that the reason it talks about election, or the, the basis for election, God looks ahead to see who will believe. And when he finds out who believes... That's a whole crazy process, of course, that God would look ahead, you know, objectively and say, well, okay. I mean, anyway, I could talk an hour about that. It just drives me crazy. But um, but he looks ahead to see who believes, and then he chooses those. That gets him off the hook. He hasn't elected anybody, really. He's just responded to people. They made the choice, and he didn't, basically. Uh, wait, first, Andrew. Uh-huh. Uh, can you, that seems to be in tension with sometimes words like coming to him, hearing, learning. Uh, you've gone in and have seen the error of somebody, someone that's irresistible, and I just don't. I mean, this is interesting, Darwin, but it's just going to happen to me whether I like it or not. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll just wait for the next 20 years and find out, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, um, I like, that's why I do like the word effective calling better, because irresistible does have this thing that, you know, no matter if you're kicking and streaming, you hate God's guts. The whole time you hate him, but it's irresistible, he's going to draw you in. But effective calling gives that sense of it will have its effect in your life, that you will see the beauty of Christ, you will willingly give yourself up, And then also, I would say this, is that the promise uh, must be obeyed and believed, you know. So, uh, as, and I, many of you have heard me say this, I spent, I remember one morning, hours under my desk as a youth director in Gadsden, Alabama, wondering if I was elect. I mean, I just torn to pieces over it, and I couldn't. Of course, for some reason, God wouldn't speak to me about it. <laughs> um, but the, the problem I, I was, I, I was disobeying the word in the sense that the promise is before you. He doesn't tell you uh, to just in abstraction figure out if you're elect or not. But he gives you the promise and he demands and commands you to believe and, to, and, and calls you to come to him. And today is the day of salvation. So we have to always be responding to his uh, words of address to us as to our responsibility. And that's where responsibility would fit in. We have a huge responsibility. 
Because if I don't come, I'm lost. Period. And you don't know that you're elect. You don't know that you're not. But you do know you'll go to hell if you don't trust in Jesus. You know. So I would. I want to stress to people those two aspects that you must believe the promise. You must come. It's addressed to you. Uh, and if. Uh, and then when this call comes to you, it has a real effect in your life of changing you. But does that help at all? Yep. Any for follow up? Yeah, irresistible. Yeah. It messes up Tulip badly, but anyway. <laughs> I think limited atonement is another one. You know, we would uh, do better without it. But um, John. I'll kick this over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I do have in the, if you all, most of you have been through the uh, new members class, and the paper I hand out actually has that title, uh, Election Doesn't Sound Fair. So it addresses that directly uh, if you'd be interested in reading longer about it. Um, but I, one of the th- illustrations I use there is if 20 people are on death row and they're all known criminals, let's say they're all serial criminals, it's been proven beyond a shadow of doubt they kill multiple people, okay, for the sake of... And one of them is let off, what will the response of the populace be if one of those guys goes free? It's not fair. But which way is it not fair? Do you all think it's not fair for those other 19 guys? Do you? I don't. I wouldn't. I think it's not fair that he's not punished. So that's just one idea, one, one way to get at it is that we all are on death row. We all are severe criminals before God. And if there's any unfairness, what's interesting is as you look at uh, Paul in Romans uh, 3, uh, 24 and following. He addresses this question. It seems like it's not fair that God has overlooked sin for so long. Okay? It seems like it's not fair that God hasn't poured His wrath out on the world. But the reason He didn't is that Christ now is a propitiation for sin. And He's borne away the wrath of God. So God is fair. So that's how differently Paul approaches it. It seems like it's not fair that those uh, that one guy got off, but then you realize, or those five people, whatever your illustration is, but then you realize punishment was taken by someone else for them. So it's okay that they walk out of prison. So it's fair that you are going to heaven because... The wrath was born by Jesus. Um, and if God chose, you know, and I, at, at one point you just have to bow to the sovereignty of God, as we'll get to in Romans 9, because he says, who are you as a piece of pottery to say to the maker, I don't like the way you made me? You know, that's how severe uh, Paul gets it. Yeah. So can you answer? No. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You're baiting me, aren't you? Okay. 
uh, which I, I would say here, you know, this is certainly a, a, a genuine offer, but it gets, uh, and you, uh, you've heard me say this before, but the, the, the uh, clearest picture of the free offer, I think, is where Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, crying over Jerusalem, and he says, I would have gathered you like a mother hen her chicks, but you wouldn't do it. I wanted you. So that's the word that I think Steve is is asking, is there a sincere offer on the part of God? Um, And we say, absolutely. In fact, in Judgment Day, people will stand before God in judgment as the Jews who rejected Jesus had to stand before Him in judgment and realize, you would have saved me if I'd come to you, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, I would have taken you like a mother hen, but you wouldn't, you know. That's how earnest, and it, it says again and again, he's not desired the death of the wicked, but they should come and repent. Uh, now, we'll talk about his, his uh, desire and sincerity in the free offer of the gospel is different from his uh, purpose and desire to save his, his elect people, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. And so I know, uh, again, this is a repeat for some of you, but here's the, uh, here's the free offer of the gospel, okay? And these, this is all the people right here. <clears throat> so we tend to think, uh, we tend to think of election this way. Here are all these wonderful people that want to believe in Jesus. They're earnest. They're leaning that way. But in election, what does God do? No, no, no. Right? That's kind of a common idea. Election populates hell. Okay? But, obviously, it's the other way. We are uh, dead, enslaved. Um, No one understands. Right? No one, yeah, enmity. We hate God. No one seeks for God, Paul says. No one. No one. All right? So, he freely, earnestly offers to everyone. And you could put here uh, the unbelieving Jews of Jerusalem, okay, as one of them. He freely, sincerely offered to them why his sincere love will take a no, I don't know. Okay. But his sincere, loving offer, and he really means it, will take no for an answer. But from these, his elect, he says he won't take no for an answer, and he draws them to himself. He, he, they hear and learn from the Father. They're drawn. Their hearts are open, etc. Um, <clears throat> so there is... And, and coupled with this, perhaps you could uh, say there's, a, a, there's common grace in the world. 
as Jesus talks about it in Matthew 5. He causes his, his reign to fall on the righteous and the wicked. So there's a common kindness and love to the world in creation. And there's a common uh, offer and love to the world uh, that perhaps even is reflected in John 3.16. He so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him. Okay? He gave his son for the whole world. Whoever believes in him. But the whole, all of us say no, but... He draws those that the Father has given him to himself. Yeah. The, the, the precondition of this picture is that all the arrows are going that way. And it's where it's hard for me to think the reason why the arrows are all going that way is man has fallen. Yeah. And God's sovereign over the fall is where this now comes back to. Yeah. Yeah. How is God sovereign over the fall? Because in some sense, in that moment, it's as if the decision was made. All the arrows, there are little points. Mm -hmm. Now the arrows are going that way. They knew it was going to happen. Right. And then later, when the turn the direction of the arrow, so it just seems to put the question into a new place without answering the question. Well, yeah, I think it answers a, a different question. And that's the question that has plagued me for, you know, most of my life or, or I've struggled and wrestled with God about is why did you plan sin, you know? And that's the real, that's the golden question to me. Why, how could you have planned sin? You know, and I, I've, I've argued many times with him about this. Like if I had two kids and I put them in the backyard, I wouldn't put a rabid dog back there, but you put Satan in the garden, you know, that kind of, I mean, I, I have those kinds of arguments, and uh, Kay had uh, the discussion with our oldest son, Chase, when he was five years old, and he asked a simple question, why didn't God kill Satan, you know, like, pretty good question, you know, why? that would have fixed everything, wouldn't it, you know, why, uh, and I've, I've, when I face, uh, I, I haven't, I know nothing of real suffering, um, but when I've read of a, uh, say a girl in India who is 12 years old, she's been a Hindu her whole life. Then these men take her and do terrible things to her and kill her. And now she's faced in eternity. And I've just, I've wept and walked away from prayer at times saying, I don't know who you are. I don't, I don't know how to get at you because you allowed this to happen. You know, so I'm, I'm really with you on the struggle of this, um, and I know the easy question, but it is the right question. I mean, or easy and, and right answer is uh, found in, uh, we, ha- we haven't gotten there yet, but Romans 9, where, um, and Romans 9 is the place to face the, the most stark statements of the sovereignty of God. And he... Uh, he gets to that point, uh, he has mercy on whomever he wills, he hardens whom, whom he wills. So he can have mercy on a person, he can harden that person like Pharaoh. It's all up in his hands. So verse 19, he says, then you'll say to me, here's Paul anticipating the questions that people will bring to him, right? Anticipating what you will say after he says, so he has mercy on whom he wishes, he hardens whom he wishes. Then this is what you're going to say to me. Why does he find fault? Who can resist his will? 
Well, who are you to answer back to God? What is molded? Uh, well, what is molded said is, Molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right or the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And then, the, and then here begins to get at that question. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So, theologians would say uh, that God, uh, God desired to reveal the glory of his wrath against sin, the glory of his righteousness against those things that are ugly and hateful and destructive that people do to each other, you know. Um, and that was part of the revelation of his glory. I naturally struggle with it. But at the same time, to me, I'm, I'm in a clay versus potter situation where I need to bow down and honor. And it does say that we see their smoke rising up forever and somehow we glorify him and honor him. Um, uh, I leave that in the righteousness of God, the perfect goodness and kindness of God, the perfect mercy of God. I would leave judgment in the... In other words, I don't think judgment is in the hand of a wicked tyrant, but judgment is the hand of an infinite God of goodness. And I'm going to leave it there and say, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know the, you know all those things, but it's in the hand of God of infinite goodness. The other thing I would say is that uh, God gave man a shocking amount of responsibility. It's a shocking amount of responsibility that Stalin could do what he could do, or Hitler could do what he could do, or that these men could abuse a girl in India or wherever. It, it shocks me, but he really... It's, it's part of our dignity uh, that he puts such responsibility in the hands of mankind and what they do really happens and God doesn't intervene. You know, I mean, he intervenes in many ways, but he allows so many things to happen. And I, I wish he didn't, you know, I wish he didn't give us so much responsibility. But I do think, Andrew, that that's part of the fall is that a uh, shocking amount of responsibility was put in man's hands. Um, and I know sin couldn't originate from God, but I know it had to be planned by God, had to be ordained by God, but it originated with man. Uh, and that's I just have to leave it right there and say I don't know how all this fits together, but we, we, we did take the tablecloth and pull down everything down upon ourselves. We, we did that because we, we had that responsibility. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, and I want to I want to uh, pull that together in, in John to say uh, one of the things that the sovereignty of God helped me uh, in my own personal faith was I, I think uh, to hear that only those that the Father draws and those who hear from the Father can come uh, it it engenders more faith on my part, like. A, an extension of my helplessness. Like I think, okay, I'm helpless. I need forgiveness. I'm helpless. I can't even come. You know, I can't believe. I, and, and in my life, it caused me all the more to fall helplessly before him and say, save me. Just, I didn't really say that word <laughs> so deeply as when I learned how lost I was, you know, that I couldn't even come. And it was just like... And you've heard me use this illustration, but when I worked in a drilling firm and one day I was at the bottom of a 30-foot hole um, testing uh, for bedrock and I looked up and, I mean, there's this little dime, little, <laughs> and your shoulders are touching the sides of the casing and it's pretty claustrophobic down there and you're, you're trying to drill a hole. But you, you look up and just think, if that guy doesn't let that seat down, you know, <laughs> I'm here forever. They'll pour the cement on top of me. It was just such a helpless feeling. And to this day, I have that sense. If I'm dealing with any struggle, anything in my life, I, I come back to that point and say, that's absolutely how helpless I am. I can't move. I can't even move to believe in you. I can't do anything apart from your grace. But that helps me not only in my dependence upon him, but it also, interestingly, helps me not to have any excuses, you know, to say, well, I'm this week, I'm that. Entrust yourself to him, and then he saves you, you know. It's like you, you can't be too weak, you can't be too bad, you can't be too lost. Uh, you, you just helplessly fall before him, he saves every part of you and everything that needs saving in you. So, actually, hearing more about God's sovereignty in my uh, deadness has helped me come to Jesus, has helped me entrust myself to Him because I, I realize all the more how much I need Him rather than my original thought that I've got my own will, I've got my own decision, I'm going to let Jesus come into my heart or not, and I'll do it whenever I want to, and and I don't need to be forgiven for everything, but there are a few things I need to be, be forgiven for. I mean, those were my thoughts early on with Christianity, which is... I would have been lost if I stayed that way. I, I was thinking what Andrew was saying, and it's like I've always felt like the same way that if we believe that God is sovereign and He's in control, and we also believe that some don't go to heaven, then ultimately we can't get God off the hook. That's true. But, but another thing, thought that came to me was somebody told me a long time ago. They said you can start anywhere you want in Romans, but you always end up. Absolutely. Kind of like you said a few minutes ago, ultimately we have to throw ourselves on the sovereignty of God. Yes, yeah. Uh, one other, I'll just say this. I, I've talked with a girl one time who is an avid reader uh, who was struggling with the sovereignty of God. And I asked her this question. Uh, she was with 
her mother in the library. This was years ago. And I said, have you ever read a book that uh, didn't have evil in it that was good? And she said, children's books, you know, <laughs> disdain. I said, no, but I mean a really good book, a good novel, good story. She said, no, I haven't. I said, can you imagine reading books without that conflict, without that evil? And she said, no, I can't. I said, I, this doesn't explain everything, but God wanted a world in which there was good and evil and there were heroes and it required faith and it was an adventure. And it started in a perfect garden. You got to get that in your head. The garden had a dragon in it. What? <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> you know? The garden had a dragon. Perfect world conflict. Okay? Perfect world conflict. We tend to think there was no conflict. There was a, it just had What was he doing there? What was God thinking? I'd say God wanted the adventure. You may not agree with his decision, but he wanted this world in which we could be heroes and entrust ourselves to God and fight against evil and all these things. I mean, it's just part of the story that he wanted to roll out in this world. I think somebody had... <laughs> her father, yeah, right. And by the way, this uh, paper that handed out could maybe help you some in meditating on the love of God and election. Just by the way, yes. All I was going to say is in your um, in the John passage we read with Jesus, even ex- the one explaining this um, in yeah. verse sixty six, it says, "In the light of Jesus explaining how it works." As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So then he turns to Peter and says, are, are you going to walk away too? And it's like, we don't have anywhere else to go. Yeah. Where else would we go? So and he probably offered a pretty good explanation. Yeah, <laughs> and they still walked away. I think you were next. Yeah. But what gets me, though, is the angels observing fully the glory of God directly face-to-face in that, you could still walk away, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah, yes, don't talk about that. No, I just... <laughs> yeah, true, but it... That, obviously, part of his plan is... Just a, uh, I was just going to say that first... I guess that's the first documented instance of Baptists getting angry and leaving whenever somebody explains God. Yeah. Armenian response to the sovereignty of God. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. You hear, you hear comically somebody will say, "Do you think? Uh, do you think that uh, certain evangelist was a Calvinist? Well, he is now, you know, because he's in heaven." But um, also recall. Well, we got to pray, Father. Uh, again, enable us. Lord, to entrust ourselves to you and to take the part of 
of creatures and a creator, to take the part of children and a father. Lord, we know how many times, how many, many times we've told our children to do something or we've explained something. They have no idea why we said it, why we command it, why we do what we do. And yet we know that they're good, uh, that we, we only have their good in mind. Uh, we are we're seeking to be, keep them safe, to be kind to them in every way we can. Lord, help us to be children uh, in, in, being cared for by our Father. And Lord, may we see everything in light of you've given your Son to die for the world. Lord, may we see even judgment, even eternal punishment, everything in the light of what you've done in Christ, as this is your revelation of who you are as God. Lord, may we cling to that uh, lighthouse uh, that gives light in our darkness. Even as John Stott himself said, apart from the cross, he said, I don't think I could believe in God. And Lord, it is the cross that binds us to, to you and helps us to comfort ourselves in who the God is that, that we worship. Give us this, Lord, for your sake, we pray. Amen.